Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Alan Yates, in whose company I am at the moment, is one of the most familiar names and certainly most recognisable faces on the UK sea angling scene. For many years now, you've worked very closely with sea angler editor Mel Rust, producing countless articles, videos and tackle reviews, some of which we'll no doubt touch on in due course. But my main reason for teaming up with you down here at Foxton today is to talk about your work with SAMF, the Sea Anglers Match Federation, of which you was a founding member. As I understand things, that all came about due to your involvement with the England Shore Angling Team, which at the time was overseen by the National Federation of Sea Anglers. So can we start by setting the scene for what was to become the biggest shake-up in English shore match angling history ever, by having you fill in some of the detail with regard to your career, one that would ultimately become the main catalyst for the formation of SAMF? Well, I wasn't really uh, that keen on match fishing when I first started fishing. I used to bass fish with my father and a couple of his mates. I got into match fishing at school when I won, the, won a competition at, at my secondary school. From then on, I went from sort of starting off at the club level for, well, must have been 10 years, won a few championships at that, and eventually ended up fishing for England. But, I mean, there was a lot went on between that. I won a lot of Opens at one time. I had 13 Opens in a row, which is still, I think, something a record, and... Nowadays, I'm not so active, I don't do so many, but just this week, I've just come off a run of three wins and a second, two of them in opens. So I ain't lost it completely, I'm a bit slower, the eyes are gone now, but casting's not quite as good, but the mind still works. But early on, my match fishing career started when matches were large. We see matches nowadays and they're pretty competitive with 30 people in them. I fished when two or 300 people fished, and when you won a match them days, I mean, you did have to win it. And uh, there were a lot of people. Match fishing has dropped off now because I've probably done my job too well. I've taught too many people how to fish. And um, I'm hoisted by my own petard now. I'm getting beaten by people that I've taught. It's very, very competitive. It's a bit elitist now too. Match fishing has gone a bit elitist with uh, measure and return and all those sorts of things. So it's not like it was when I first started. Although I still enjoy it a lot. I still go every weekend I can. How exactly did the match league set up work back in those early days? Well, of course, I mean, club leagues were very popular in the 60s and 70s, and lots of clubs had put a team in their local league. And I fished for a, a team uh, from Sangate called Sangate Outlaws, and we dominated the Kent League for a number of years. I eventually went to uh, another team. I, got, I mean, this is what happened with the teams. The transfer system came so, so bad or so good, depends on which way you look at it, that they pinched all the best anglers and put them in one team so that the leagues just fell apart because you had guys from Norfolk and guys from Humber, guys from Wales fishing in one team and the rest didn't have a chance. And I, I mean, that's what happened down here. Our league just fell apart. Once we got two or three good teams, it was more or less a two-team league. From the leagues, I mean, uh, that's where I probably made, made my name first in league results and opens. Eventually, I did get picked for England I mean there, there is a quite a complicated story there I didn't get picked straight away there's a bit of controversy over it which eventually led to the formation of SAMF and I'll tell you about that in a minute but when I did get picked it was as a gain that the internationals were different then it was for a two-man team in a home international uh, in the old days they used to fish the first day as an international when I was drawn paired with Tony Burnham from Grimsby with Cleethorpe's where he comes from 
and we actually won the international and I got some stick that day from a couple of the locals but the, the way it worked the next day you had to fish in an open competition and it was a 360 entry Scarborough match and I won that as well and of course I got a lot of respect because at the time I was getting a bit of stick of anybody can get in the team and win the international but where will he do tomorrow and I ended up winning that as well so yeah and that was the start after that it became teams of four and it wasn't until 1990 that we got in the world championships England had kept out of it it was very much a European thing and it still probably is there's a few teams from South Africa Brazil come sometimes but it's essentially basically Europe and we got to the first one in 91 in Holland and I won a gold medal I was actually fourth individual but we won the team gold which I've always thought was the important thing the irony about that is that this year my son Richard fished for England in Holland in the world championships and he got the bronze individual medal and his team came fourth so I consider his bronze is quite a good good feat but um I can say I got a gold medal in Holland uh after that I fished well, from about nine, I fish, actually fished internationally from 1980, but we weren't in the World Championships until 90, 91. And I fished for another 12, 15 years. During that time, I won a gold in Ireland, and we had silver in Italy, bronze in Portugal, a couple of bronzes in different places. I had my fair share of individual glory, but I never actually got the gold individual medal, but I got a good collection of team medals. And I came to the stage when I thought enough is enough I'll give the youngers a bit of a chance and we've got quite a young team now although one or two of the old boys they're still hanging on and you've got to have your wits about it you've got to have a, you've got to be able to cast you've got to have good eyesight because everything's so small now we're fishing with little fish we're using five six pound snoods and it is refined it's not something once you get to 50 and the eyes start going I mean I'm 68 now so I am getting on a bit how many appearances and medals then do you think you earned in total over that time? Appearances, I would think something like 30. It depends. If you count, I mean, I fished for the European Federation and I did actually win a couple of world gold medals for the European Federation. I won a silver in, in an individual silver in South Africa and a couple of bronzes one year. So I've fished quite a lot of times for the different organisations, but SIPS is the major organisation, and the teams were then picked by the National Federation of Sea Anglers. They're picked by the Angling Trust now. I suppose, overall, medal-wise, for SIPS, I probably had six or seven individual medals. I've got a collection of them up there, but other organisations with European Federation, that sort of thing, probably a few more, quite a lot more. And looking back on them all now, which win or catch stands out above the rest? I've always quoted one, and that was in Namibia. I fished for England in Namibia in the 80s. Actually, it was um, the year that Southwest Africa became independent and became Namibia. And um, Margaret Thatcher was at Windhoek at the, on the week we were there. They gained their independence. And I actually caught two sharks within the last oh, hour of the competition... And I weighed in 440 pounds with these two sharks and only came fourth. And I still think that was because it was so hectic for an hour and an hour and a half. The actual story is I hooked a, a bronze whaler about 200 pounds and I landed it and I was exhausted. And we had a German coach manager and he more or less got the whip out and got me to get my hook in the water again and five minutes to go. And I was prepared. I was because it's hot country and I was absolutely shot away. 
And he said, come on, Alan, get out there again. And I cast out again, and damn if a shark didn't take my bait more straight away. And I was, I had 20 minutes to get it in after the whistle. And I landed it with about a minute spare. And then I ended up fourth. And the guy that won it, a South African, won it, and he had one shark of 300 and something and another one of 290 or something. It was ridiculous. It was really, I mean, massive fish and wonderful fishing. You get a chance, go to Namibia. I fished it back in the late 1990s, actually, with Dave Lewis. I'm no shore fisherman, but as you say, it was incredible. Couldn't go wrong. We caught lots of stem bass and cob and things like that, but the, um, they were worth double points when we fished the internationals. All the silverfish were worth double points, but the sharks, they counted single points, but of course they were so much bigger, you had no choice but go for sharks. You had to fish for them. Describe then what it feels like to get that first England call-up. Well, I mean, obviously, before you get picked, you're worried about getting picked, and you think, oh, no, I won't get picked. But when you get picked, the first thing you think of is, are you good enough? Am I, what am I going to do? Am I going to really be able to handle it? And I must say, I was very nervous. I remember the first time when I went with Tony Burnham, when we were in the International, Home International, and we were at Scarborough, and I was very nervous. And I, I went up to the, um, the booking inn, met Tony... All the other lads were there, all the other teams, because it was only in home international coats for four country, home countries. And I just lost it completely, lost all the nervousness. I just settled down because they were all people that I knew. I was fishing against mates, you know, Scotland. I knew them. I'd fish with them in opens and things like that. So I lost it. I lost all the nerves completely. And from that time, I never really had a problem with it. I have seen other people suffer because it can really go wrong if fishing's like that. Sometimes everything works for you, sometimes it doesn't. And you can't pick when you're going to be lucky or when you're going to be successful. And if you fish internationals, you'll soon find that, that you're going to have one where it all goes wrong. And you think to yourself, well, I've done so well in an open or a club match and then a column comes in the international, my one chance, and it all goes wrong. And it happens to everybody. And I would say that I've been slightly unlucky in my international career. Never won an individual gold. In the World Championships, I fished it about, as I say, about 12 times. Been very close to it, but I've always maintained that the guy that gets the points from the lowly section and not the gold medal winner, the other three or four in the team that get those vital points are the ones that win the gold medal for the team. And I've never liked the fact the individual competition is in at the same time as the team event because of that, because I've always thought, and I said it in print recently, I was a good weigher in. I could weigh in anywhere. Catching a fish, blanking is just no way you can blank. You can't blank in a world championship. That is really hard. It's hard on the mind as well. You've got to weigh in. And that was one thing I prided myself on, that I would weigh in. Didn't necessarily want to come last in a zone either. So if you could avoid doing that. And I mean, you, you look at the good team anglers over the years. Once or twice, some of them have got a gold medal or they've got a silver medal or an individual bronze. But most of them are pretty consistently. They're going to win sections and come second and third in the section. Trouble with the World Championship, one bad draw and you're blown out of the individual. But you can still affect what happens in the team. And that's, that's the important thing to me. Nonetheless, you've still been up there on the top step of the podium with the team. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the first time we did it, there was a story there. It was in Holland and uh, we were sort of head to head with the Germans. And every time he stopped at a petrol station, the Dutch said, are you beating the Germans? Are you beating the Germans? Not who's winning, are you beating the Germans? And when we, when we won it, the Germans were second 
and the Dutch played the national anthem for the Germans. As the flag went up, they played the English national anthem at twice. We were told at the time they didn't like the Germans because of what happened in the war, but that's a long time ago. <laughs> but it was, it was funny at the time. I remember world course fishing champion Ian Heaps talking about the time he won individual gold. He described himself as a man's man and not one for much public emotion. But when he was called to the podium with the flag hanging there and the national anthem playing, he just couldn't hold back the tears. That's a measure of how much it meant to him. So how did you feel the first time you climbed onto the podium? It does happen. It's happened to me a couple of times. Um, you well up a bit. The emotion is there, especially when you fish for a week. You fish for a week and every day the pressure's on, the pressure's on. And That first year in Holland, we were behind, behind, behind and we thought we'd just about got the silver medal and then we got the gold medal. And we won the gold in Ireland as well and we had the same situation where we were all behind all the way and it was just one result, a couple of points in a couple of sections on the last day and we won the gold. And it's a very emotional seeing the, the flag going up the pole. I mean... Uh, the cross of St George going out a pole for an Englishman, it, it's the same for the Scots and the Irish and anywhere around the world you, you stand by your flag going up and that's one of the things I like about the World Championships because it's not just give him a medal, they have a proper ceremony. Like when you watch the Olympics on the telly, that, that even makes me cry when I watch it on the telly with the Olympics, so what's it going to do to most guys? It doesn't matter about being a man or a lady or whatever, you, just, you do feel the emotion, there's no doubt about it even when you don't win. As a non-competitive angler, it's never going to happen to me. The nearest I've ever been to that is as a national record holder, and even that these days has lost all of its shine, as conservation-minded specimen hunters put even bigger fish back unclaimed, discrediting the inclusions in the list. Sticking with the international theme, and having interviewed quite a number of ex-England internationals from the course, game and sea fishing camps, and in the case of the latter, both boat and shore, one notable recurring theme, though not from everybody I would add, has been criticism of both the management style and the underlying politics. Have you any observations to make there? No, I mean, I've got opinions on that. When I was involved in internationals, the team selection was done by a panel or a committee, and um, you could never please all the people all the time. Money obviously comes into it because, I mean, we get, nowadays there's a government grant goes to the, the Angling Trust and the money's put towards the teams apart from other things. A lot of people don't agree with that. The money goes to the angling teams. But I think that, that angling match fishing and, and competition fishing in general is at very much at the forefront. That's the only thing we've got in the competition states. It's the only thing we've got to look up to. If a guy wins a gold medal, I mean, it's like Alan Price from Wales won the gold medal... Now, he, he's a hero, that there's no doubt about it. He got in the team through effort as well, so I, I don't think nowadays you get many... In the old days, years ago, it was who you knew, but now it's not. You've got to know what you're doing, and these teams are very good. In the sea, we've got a little bit of a south-north divide. The problem we've got is that modern sea fishing at international level on the continent is very, very fine fishing. It's fishy with six-pound mainline, four-pound hook snoods, tiny little hooks for small species. Not always small, but you've got to be able to land the bigger ones on that light gear as well. You're fishing in gin-clear water in the Mediterranean and places like that. So the people that go have got to be good at that kind of fishing. And what's happened, because we're nearer the continent and we're in the south of England where the water's clearer, our anglers down south tend to be more geared up for that. Now, my son 
He doesn't do particularly well in opens in this country, but he has fished a lot since he was a junior. He was a junior international when he was 10 in France, and he's got geared up, and there's another guy from Kent, uh, Saul Page. They are just totally into that kind of fishing. Alan Price from Wales, who won the World Championships this year, he is also totally, he fishes that way. He fishes the continental style, fixed ball, five pound, six pound line, long rods, tiny hooks, and he uses it in England as well and does well. Another Welshman, Joe Arch, who I was in um, Sardinia last year, and the year before, Joe won the Sardinian Championship. He is also totally geared up to fish for small fish. So it's become specialist. So if you're going to pick a guy to fish for England now, he's got to be able to fish on the continent. He's got to be able to fish that style. And unfortunately, it takes time to learn that. So the nucleus of the people that know that system and know how to do that are in Wales and in the south of England. And that's why there is a little bit of a divide. Although there are still anglers capable in the north of getting in the team, but a lot of them, I think, they don't apply because they don't think they've got a chance and they don't think they've got the skills. And it's as simple as that. I thought you had to put a performance CV together to be judged on. Yes, you do. I mean, you put your results in, but I mean, if you've got 28 matches catching cod and dogfish, they're not going to be a lot of good in Italy, are they? Whereas some of these guys down here, they pop over to France, they pop over to Belgium, they go to Spain. I mean, I... Myself, I was in Portugal a couple of months ago. Now, I don't fish internationally anymore. And I was in Sardinia. I used my holiday. But a lot of these internationals now, that's what they do. And that's how you get good at it. You know, you just can't turn up on a beach in, in Sardinia and catch fish. It's taken some of these guys 10, 15, 20 years even. I mean, the guys like Ian Golds, he's back to internationals at the moment. Now, he's getting on a bit, but he's still a very skilled light line fisherman. It's very akin to freshwater fishing, I suppose. It, it's like the course anglers, they're the same. They've got to be good at pole fishing. And if you don't pole fish in freshwater, you're not going to get in the World Championship team. Here, if you don't fish continental style, there's not much chance of you getting in the World Team. I wouldn't have thought, anyway. So you still need to serve your apprenticeship and come up through the ranks. It's just that now it's a different apprenticeship. Yeah, it's a different apprenticeship. You've got to nip across to France and Belgium and generally get on the continent and get that style of angling under your belt. And it's no longer jobs for the boys? No, no, definitely not anymore. I mean, the other thing about it is, of course, our fishing's going down the pan and we're catching up with the continent very quickly, especially on the south coast where I live in Kent and right through through Hampshire and Sussex, the fishing's gone to pot a bit and, and it ends up being very continental style. Now is probably the right time to switch our attentions to match fishing matters outside of the international camp. By all accounts, throughout the 1970s, the way in which league match fishing was conducted left a lot of regular match anglers feeling dissatisfied. So much so, that in 1980, you became instrumental in bringing about fundamental change to the direction that match fishing would ultimately take and embrace through the formation of SAMF, the Sea Match Angling Federation. Well, about about... 1978-79 I had a very good run of match results as I said before I won 13 in a row that was opens with 200 plus and the, at the time I worked for the Angling Times I wrote a column I wrote a column for 30 odd years for the Angling Times and the Angling Times said Yates got to be in the England team this year he can't fail to get in and I applied 
and didn't get in. And the reason I didn't get in was given as I'd won a cash prize in a competition at South End. One of the clubs, it was against the rules then to have cash prizes. And there was a breakaway group in Essex that wanted to run cash prizes. And I'd gone to this match, fished it and won it. And I won, I think it was about 250 quid at the time. It wasn't a great deal of money by today's standards, but then it was. Anyway, I didn't get picked for England. And in the meantime, a lot of the guys that I fished with were complaining that clubs were taking too much money out of the prizes. There was too many rovers where they weren't stewarded and the people were cheating. And all in all, there was a lot of discontent. And this was the sort of catalyst that brought about the formation of SAMF. And because I was driven as well, because I hadn't been picked, I was annoyed. I thought, well, I should have been in the team. And my very best mate at the time, Clive Richards, he said, you've got to do something about this, Alan. We ought to form our own group and start up a competition group. So that was how the Sea Anglers Match Federation was born. People like Bob Gleddy, who's long time dead now, but Bob was involved from the North West, and then there was Jim Doby from the North East. There was lots of anglers involved. Um, we got together and we had a meeting in London, and the NFSA, the National Federation of Sea Anglers, they urged us not to go ahead. Anyway, they turned up the meeting and tried to persuade the anglers there not to do it, and um, the feeling that, I mean, there was... Another well-known angler was John Amory, Dick Penny from Sussex. There was a lot of well-known anglers there. And they were all adamant, no, we're doing this, we're doing this. It's your fault. The NFSA have not done anything with the match anglers. And of course, Samp was born. It was born in 1980. We started it with the Irish pairs. I, I was a secretary at the time. I was elected secretary. We started with the Irish pairs. We started another competition called the Masters. And to be honest, it went on and it did good things because in the end, the NFSA, which is now the Angling Trust, adopted SAMF match rules. European Federation adopted SAMF match rules. And much of the SIPS rules, which is the world body, headquarters in France, but the world body, SIPS, they have now got SAMF match rules or more or less a version of them. Catch and release came in. Present time, the match federation is struggling. I'm not actually a member anymore. And I resigned from the secretary's job in about 93, something like that. And in recent years, I haven't joined because I felt that the Federation has done its job. With the amalgamation of the sport of angling through the Angling Trust, I felt there's not any room anymore for the smaller national bodies, if you like. We should let the Angling Trust do everything. And I think every angler should be a member of the, of the Angling Trust. Every young angler especially who wants to get involved and wants to fish matches and wants to take part in everything. So I've really not followed up with SAMF now. They're still going, but um, as I say, they're more or less like a club now, just a small club. But it was it was an eventful time. I mean, it was controversial at the time. I've still got the cuttings from the angling times and then it made the national press. You know, you can imagine breakaway, anglers breakaway, and it was good fun at the time. Well, it kept me busy because I was secretary for 10 years and that was hard work with over 1,500 members at the time. It may well be like a club now, but back then it was a political force to be reckoned with and, as you say, stimulated a great deal of change. So perhaps you could expand a little more on those achievements. Obviously, the first thing they did was to introduce the cash prizes. Now, this is still probably controversial and I still think that it was probably the ruination of match fishing because what happened, all the clubs immediately wanted cash. 
They had some good big competitions with prizes and instead of what we thought would happen was that the matchmen themselves would have their cash prizes and the big events would have their cars and their, you know, these sort of things. But what happened, everybody went cash. And of course, it's easy because you don't have to go out and buy a load of prizes. You just pay in the money you got. And that was the sort of the one thing that probably went wrong. If, if it had stayed as it was with cash prizes being allowed, it probably would have been okay but what happened was we get to the situation now where there's very few big competitions anglers have got good they've got better and they're going for the cash and it's more competitive so the average joe hasn't got so much chance add to that the fishing's not as good you can't get a big cod come along and win a competition nowadays but the other things that the match federation brought out was stewarding we brought out bag labels and fish were signed in as they were caught there's a forerunner for measure and return. Fish are measured and, and signed in as they're caught and then released now. But that, in general, we even had a rule that said that the club couldn't take more than 30% of the entry money in profit because lots of clubs were running an open of the year just to sort of fill their bank balance and they were paying very little back with some really terrible prizes. I mean, that I can remember how bad it was because I was there and how much of these clubs were taking more than 70% out of the entry fees and giving a few bottles of wine to these guys, and that's what they didn't like. So we did some good things. Of course, pegging was a major factor. The pegging and security of the matches, they're much more secure nowadays. We do get still get the odd cheat, but he usually gets caught because the system is so good. But in those days, when it was a rover, there was a lot of matches where Fred went round the corner with his mates when he'd come back with a bag of fish and his mates wouldn't have any or they'd be fishing out of bounds or they'd be fishing in the boat or whatever that was going on. There was an instant last year where somebody was caught cheating, but that is rare now. It's, it's quite a rare occurrence. The system works, basically. As you've said, prior to SAMV, the NFSA wielded all the sea angling power. But since SAMV, the NFSA has evolved into the Angling Trust. Have you any other observations to make regarding either organisation and indeed what the future steered by any subsequent sea angling regulatory body might actually bring? We moaned about the National Federation of Sea Anglers but they did a lot of work. I mean I stood on their standing committee for a lot of years. Uh, I was a local divisional treasurer and secretary for a lot of years and they did a lot of work. Unfortunately when the government decided that they were only going to talk with one body the National Federation folded because they just couldn't compete. The Angling Trust came in, took over, and they major on course fishing. I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever about that. You, nobody can argue otherwise. They do a little bit for sea angling, and there's a possibility that they will do more in the future. There's lots of potential for them to do a lot of good because they've got the commercial lobby to fight course fishing is pretty well sorted now i mean anybody who's a member of a freshwater club and i do a lot of course fishing they've got it made you've got a grant to fill your lake up with fish you can have as many as you like more or less now and in general course fishing is wonderful you just go along in a puddle full of fish and catch loads that's lovely but in the sea it's the complete opposite you go and compete with the trawlers and i think the angling trust will eventually fight sea anglers corner there's little little glimpses of it now it's going on with you know there's a bit of bit of work going on to give us some protection or some protection inshore i mean i think that's what most shore anglers would want 
They want some sort of restriction on trawling and netting right up to the, the beach. And that may yet come in a few years' time. At the moment, we've got the EU. Now, we've just got the EU allowing bigger quotas for place and sole this very day. And they're also continuing with this discard argument. They're saying, right, we won't allow discards anymore. We'll keep the fish. And, of course, what that means is that more fish are going to be caught, more fish are going to be killed. It's all about money. I hope the Angling Trust can do the best they can because they're fighting an uphill battle when it comes to the sea. But eventually, I think we'll get our way. It won't be in my time, but in our kids' future, there is a possibility that they'll have the fishing as good as it was when I was their age. I mean, crikey. I go fishing ten times in the winter. I've been this year ten times and not caught a cod. And I said to one of my mates, Johnny's 75. I said, do you remember when we used to go? It used to be 10 cod a time, not 10 times with no cod. And I actually caught, in the 60s, 100 cod over £10 in a season. And, you know, that, that was from the beach. Now I don't catch one £10 cod from the, from the shore one year to the next. It's just ridiculously poor, the fishing. Of course, anglers, are, they enjoy their fishing. And they make do. I've seen it on the continent. They make do with what they got. And though I might laugh and say the fishing's crap or rubbish or poor, to them it's not because there are fish. The sea's rich. It's full of fish. We may only have the dregs. We've got the rockling, the white in the dabs and a few others to catch. But there's plenty of fish. It's just that we haven't got the prime anymore. They've gone. The place, the cod, the bass are going too. It is a problem that anything that's edible is getting trawled and netted to death. Yet the Angling Trust suggested I take a seat on behalf of recreational sea angling on the Inshore Fisheries Conservation Authority for the North West, which I have done, and about which a report back to them were applicable. I did get sort of the same request to get involved, but unfortunately I've been in administration all my life and I felt I'd done my bit. And uh, that was why I really haven't taken up anything with the, with the Angling Trust. I mean, I belong to a few clubs, but I don't do committee work or that sort of thing now, I think over the years I've done enough, I've done my share. Let somebody younger to have a go and uh, see what they can do. Which leads us very nicely on to my next question, which is that while you are no longer active within SAMF, you do still actively match fish. So bring us up to date now with what you're up to on the current shore match fishing scene. Well, I tend to do a lot more match fishing at club level. Ironically, I mean, I work for Sea Angler magazine and I run the two major sea angling competitions in the country in the Penn League and the Penn Clubman League. Now the Penn League is it's like the ranking tournament of match anglers in the UK and Ireland and I've, I've took part in that for years. In recent years I, I've started a new competition for the club anglers, for the lesser anglers if you like and it is one of the growth areas. Club fishing is one of the sea angling's few growth areas. I go to club matches now and they've got 20 people fishing an evening comp, 7 till 10, 7 till 11. And I get these results in from all over the country now, from clubs who take part in the clubmen, and they're all finding that people are enjoying it, they love it. It's not so competitive. It's still competitive, but it's not the same cut and thrust as an open. It's back to the pub afterwards and have a chinwag and a beer over who's won. I went to an open this Sunday and um, I ended up second in a very competitive open. It's one of my few successes this year. It's not as easy nowadays. There's so many good anglers. And if you've got a peg match with 50 in it, someone is going to have a red hot peg and they're all casting miles. 
the young'uns can cast a bait miles, which is why I was successful when I was young. I could cast a long way. So I find the club matches are better because they're in the evening, there's more fish inshore, the daytime it's harder to catch. And that's why I'd, I'd go on the pier as well a lot, where I can sort of throw out 50 yards and have a bit of fun. So when I retire, that's what I'll do, retire to the pier. <laughs> and practical fishing aside, you still have Sea Angler magazine. Plus, I believe you're also quite heavily involved in the tackle side of things with TF Gear. TF Gear is a large company. You'll probably know them better through Matt Hayes. He did the course and game gear for them. Well, they didn't touch sea angling, and they asked me if I'd put together a, a set of sea gear, basically. And in our last two years, that's what I've done. We've majored on sort of not very expensive gear. We've sort of gone for not the cheap stuff, not the dear stuff, but in the middle. Like a, a beach caster for a 99.99, and I've got one, and I'm using one of those. And some of the gear we've got, I'm, I must admit, I'm really pleased with it, and I'm using it. One of the agreements I've always had, I worked for Fox, I've worked for Abu, I've worked for quite a lot of companies over the years, and one of the agreements I always had was, I don't have to use your gear if I don't want to, because I've got my own opinions on stuff, and we don't always get what we want. And I am using TF gear. It's that good. I'm, I'm well pleased with what they've done. I would say, from the journalist point of view, I work for Sea Angler, I've got a contract with them to write so many features a month. I also run, as I said before, the Pen League, the Clubman. I do the Coastal Report pages. I do a lot of the stuff in the back of the sea angle that it's got, not got a name on it. I'm very busy. I've never worked so hard in my life. Since I've been about 55, I've worked harder than when I was younger. I also do a few blogs for the internet, you know, these things. I'm also a consultant for Mustard. I should have to think about retiring one day, I think. <laughs> I should think you will. But sometimes it can be quite difficult to let go. Mel Rust, your boss at Sea Angler, was saying pretty much the same thing when I interviewed him recently. He also said to ask why you kick your tackle box from time to time. Well, I don't do it anymore. I still talk to myself a lot. Like one of my mates who fishes at Folkestone, he, he said, whenever you get angry, he said, we got to watch out. And I, it was a way of doing myself up. When I was in an international, if things weren't going right, I tend to punish myself. I talk to myself, and I, I have kicked my tackle box in, in frustration at times. But I've always found, I always say to people, well, don't give up. I, I'm not saying I've never give up, because I have. But usually if I'm doing poorly, then I'll gee myself up a bit with a rant at myself and strut around, and I, I usually get out of it. And once you get, I mean, you watch any sport, I watch the darts and the snooker, and you watch the darts, and when things are going downhill, it's very, very difficult to halt them. And fishing is terrible like that. Same as golf. If it's not running for you, there's little you can do, and, and that's my, my way of getting out of it. I have a good shout at myself and talk, 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 natter. And quite a lot of the anglers will laugh. They know, they, they say, oh, well, he's having a little tack, you know, he's having a chat with himself. But quite often it gets me out of the hole and gets me starting again and gets everything moving and I improve. And, and I've, I've won a lot of matches after being down the pan halfway through by suddenly reinventing myself through a good moan and gone on to catch anything, catch something. So, yeah, I recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> but you've mellowed. Yeah, well, I've mellowed a bit. I still muttered, but I don't mutter so loud. <laughs> So what does the future hold for Alan Yates then? 
Well, I mean, I'm going to carry on fishing as long as I can. I'm going to carry on working as long as I can. I'm one of those lucky people that's got a job that I love doing. I mean, it's not hard work writing about fishing and talking about fishing all the time. I just absolutely love it. I still do my own bait digging. I mean, I've just been back from pumping now. I'm pumping a few lugworms. And I, you know, I've always thought that angling uh, has kept me reasonably fit. And um, I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can. There's no doubt about it. Has that had your emphasis or your outlook changed, though? No, because you still want to win or want to catch a big one, don't you? I mean, I do... I course fish and I match fish and I trout fish and I do every kind of fishing you can think of. And I'm quite happy catching a three-inch gudgeon or a five-ounce pout if it counts for something in a match, which is why I like match fishing, because you're against the other people, you're against the fish. I've done specimen hunting to the hilt. I think fish are stupid and I could catch them all day if I choose when and where to go. But it's not the same with match fishing. It's different challenge and and i think that's why i I will never relinquish the match fishing i've gone off the freelancing a little bit i mean i go up to the carp lake sometimes and sit there and bag up a load of carp and i think well what am i doing this for this is easy these carp are stupid and it would be nice if i could do that with cod but i can't do that anymore but so i'll carry on with the match fishing nice challenge i just don't see i'm going to stop there's only one way i'll stop it's like most anglers i think yep fall off the end of the pier or something (laughs) and looking back now over the entirety of what you've both attempted and achieved are there any regrets perhaps something you wish you had or hadn't done or even some ambition unfulfilled yeah i suppose we're always going to say that i mean probably not winning an individual gold medal at the world championships was hard but there are a couple of big competitions that i never actually won i was second three times in the european and all england Heaven knows how many times I came in the top 10 and I never actually won it. And a couple of my mates won it off, when it was a rover this was, a couple of my mates won it off the spot next to me and a couple of my mates won it off the peg when it was pegged by drawing where I would have gone. That was one, the European. But it, you know, I won so many others that it didn't really matter at the time. I didn't think of it like that. And the old story about coming second, you're only the bridesmaid. That's a load of rubbish, I'll tell you. I made a reputation out of coming second and third, and um, I'd rather come second and third than nowhere. And now you're on the verge of setting up a dynasty with your son. Yeah, Richard's, uh, he's been fishing with me since he was three. I mean, he used to sit on my lap and he was, oh, he was mad keen for it. Once he got to school, he was really mad keen. I had a job to keep him at school. He's got into um, the international side, and he's got into the continental side of fishing, and he majors on that. He does that all the time. He doesn't fish as much as I do, but it, if there's anything international going, or if there's a match overseas, he's there. So it's a different outlook, different ball game for him. But one to watch for the future, nonetheless. Oh, I think you'll do all right. I think you'll do all right. There's several of them from this area of the coast, from Kent. There's two or three youngsters that are doing quite well. As I said before, I mentioned Saul Page, and we've got the England set-up's got a new manager. This year, a guy called Martin Reed. he's probably one of the best match anglers in the country. Very versatile, he casts well, he's good with most kinds of fishing. And he took on an England manager's job. I think it's slightly wasted, I think he should be in the team, but he's brought a breath of fresh air to the international team, and I think, yeah, I think the future looks good. So that's a prediction then, casting tablets of stone. A 
And maybe in 50 years' time, when someone is looking back at the story of Samph and listening to this, they might even check the then historical records to see if he was right. Similarly, predictions regarding the expansion of the Angling Trust to cover all facets of fishing, which they're not quite managing to do as yet. My thanks then to Alan Yates for sharing this rather brief potted history of such a sparkling angling career with us here.